Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage for this morning comes from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Listen for what God is saying to you. I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. If you bring me your entirely burned offerings and gifts of food, I won't be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, house of Israel? You will take up Sakath, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, your images which you made for yourselves. May God add blessing and understanding to the living out of his scripture. Good morning, everyone. My name is Emily McGinley, and I have the great joy of serving as the pastor here at Urban Village Church, Hyde Park Woodlawn, and um, serving in leadership alongside so many of the folks that you have seen up front this morning and who you don't ever really see up front, but often help make us help us do what we do. Um, please join me in a word of prayer. God, you delight when we're creators of justice and joy and compassion and peace, and so we invite you into this space for your spirit to move within us and throughout us and around us that we might grow closer to that image toward that purpose that you have set us for. Help us to clear away the clutter of our minds, the noise of this world, so that we can hear your still, small voice speaking to us, urging us toward our fuller selves and toward your greater purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I was in eighth grade, um, I remember the moment when I got my algebra textbook and discovered that all of the answers were in the back. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> Holla. But what seemed like a windfall <laughs> uh, turned out to be more of a de devastating new chapter in my education. Math was about to get a lot harder. <laughs> Um, just having the answers, as it turned out, was not going to cut it anymore. From then on, my completed homework assignments consisted of at least two sheets of paper stapled together, and on the top sheet, the problems were laid out neatly with the final answer listed, and the sheet underneath was not always as neat. Um, the purpose of this sheet was to show the steps that I had taken to solve the problem. Now, sometimes, but not often, uh, the sheet would show signs of erasing and rewriting uh, because I'd realized somewhere along the way that I had done something wrong and I'd have to start over again. And the point of that sheet wasn't to show how perfect I was, right? It was to show that I had done the work. 
the purpose of the sheet was to show the teacher that I had followed the correct steps and put in my time in order to think through the challenge of the problem in order to arrive at the correct answer. And this helped the teacher know that I was learning. And also, I think, probably gave them an idea of what areas students still needed to gain a little bit more instruction and clarity on. Now, showing my uh, work wasn't an accessory to my homework. It was actually essential. If I had just sort of turned in that top sheet, right, it, wouldn't, it would be returned to me as incomplete, and I would have failed the assignment. Well, as it turns out, math homework isn't the only situation where showing your work is necessary. In our passage for today, this guy Amos, um, one of what is called the uh, minor prophets uh, that you find in, in the Bible, in the Christian Bible, um, this guy Amos is calling his people out for essentially only turning in the top sheet of their faith. The choir had perfected their sway clap, and the pastors had written out eloquent prayers that brought tears to the eyes of everyone who heard them. The outreach team got all the right church swag, a, a t-shirt for every event and occasion, and their nails had been mannied, their toes had been pettied with an angelic sheen on every third nail. It was picture perfect, and they were doomed. Because while they had spent all their time executing flawless worship, they had completely, utterly failed to show any work that all that effort had produced. Year after year, the festivals grew more and more elaborate, while concerns for the most vulnerable among them had diminished. They had failed to do the work of examining how they might grow and learn and live according to God's instruction. And they let those troubling questions, questions like, what shall we do to care for orphans and widows, for those among us who have been systematically disenfranchised? They let all those inconvenient questions uh, recede to the background. And their songs then became shrill in God's ears. Their prayers were like cruel jokes. The whole enterprise of worship had the spiritual depth of a product launch. And for Amos, an unlikely prophet, all of this extra that church had become made no sense at all to him. He was about as country as they came, a sheep herder, a fig farmer, from no special lineage or notable education, maybe a, a, a two-year degree at a local community college um, at best. But like Auntie Maxine, he's ready to reclaim God's time and set the record straight. Everyone's mighty eager for the end times to arrive, going so far as to develop multi-million dollar industries that spawn book series and movies so that they can be done with this world and on to the next. But Amos has a question for them. Why do you desire the day of the Lord? Do you even realize where you stand in this equation? And then he goes on to tell them the truth about themselves. It's not that it was wrong for them to worship. It's not that God rejects worship and festivals as a general rule. I mean, for the most part, much of what they were doing actually was in direct obedience to God's orders on worship and religious life. The problem was that their worship was incomplete. They're, they were there on Sunday, but none of it mattered Monday through Saturday. Now, there's a phrase that started showing up a few years ago, sorry, not sorry. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've used it. Sorry, not sorry is employed when you do or say something that you know is annoying to someone else and want to kind of acknowledge it in a cheeky way. And it's usually kind of funny, but it kind of points to this broader practice in relationships that uh, we observe, the phopology, right? Phopologies are a way for an offender to convince themselves that they have done their due diligence without having actually engaged in the uncomfortable conversations that a real apology requires. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a phopology? 
Well, you can usually spot one this way. It starts out well enough with an I'm sorry, but then it sort of devolves, right? So I'm sorry if I. I'm sorry that you. I'm sorry, but most of us have encountered a variation of this at one point or another in our relationships, and it's infuriating for lots of reasons, but one of them is that the person has often completely, willfully failed to do any self-reflection about why they should be apologizing in the first place, right? Who they hurt and what damage they've caused. And it's this kind of reflection that the prophet Amos is trying to call forth from his people. It's this kind of reflection that many are calling forth today, right? Particularly when it comes to conversations around things like reparations. Now, over the last few years, thanks to the work of critical thought leaders and writers, there has been a growing and robust conversation on how to remember our history of slave labor and adjust it, uh, address it justly. So from chattel slavery to redlining and blockbusting, there is more and more research uh, that is revealing how vast and devastating are the effects that our history of racial oppression and systemic disenfranchisement has been. And so... We seem to be in a moment where we have an opportunity to sort of pull out that second sheet of paper to start showing our work. Well, what might that look like? Some folks would jump straight to solutions, but the problem with this, I think, is that it leaves those who have been harmed feeling unseen and unheard. And it leaves those who have benefited with an untroubled, untextured conscience. It's in this space between ignoring the problem and solving the problem where I think we can hear Amos kind of doing this uh, calling out and asking us to respond, to do our work. Well, I recently read an article, um, a, case for the a Case for Reparations at the University of Chicago. Now, a group of historians at the U of C laid out the familiar pattern that could be found all over the country, a pattern of wealth creation by slaves, which seeded institutions that now hold incredible wealth and house generations of power. These historians framed the particular thread of this wealth through the experience of one woman, an enslaved woman named Julia Leakes, who, despite her best efforts, failed to keep her family united and, like countless others, lost track of her relations on auction blocks the business decisions of her owner, Stephen Douglas. Now, Douglas not only grew a personal fortune on the backs of folks like Leeks and other slaves, but also a political career. His donation of 10 acres of land became the grounds on which the original University of Chicago campus was built, an area that now we call um, Bronzeville. While we may not have known the details of this history, I guess that most of us aren't especially surprised to learn it. Um, it's a there's variation on the theme for most of our oldest institutions. And so more and more institutions are grappling with their past and wrestling with this question of, what, of how to handle what it finds. And every response is different. Several years ago, the Episcopal Church publicly rejected its doctrine of discovery, one of the primary theological justifications for stealing land from Native Americans. Years before that, the post-apartheid South African government moved through a lengthy truth and reconciliation process, giving space for those who had been harmed by apartheid to share their experiences, as well as those who had done the harming to also have space to share about their complicity. When I was in Germany, everywhere I traveled, I would encounter these powerful monuments that acknowledge the country's history of Jewish genocide. 
Instead of ignoring their histories, these institutions and governments dug them up and brought them to light and dealt with them. They understood that, as the Archbishop Desmond Tutu put it, there could be no future without forgiveness. But of course, for every robust engagement and earnest confession, there are countless of faux apologies and carefully crafted, worded evasions of acknowledgement. Uh, in December of 2009, the U.S. government issued an official apology to Native Americans. Did anyone know this? Okay, that's uh, pretty regular. Um, and it was done in this kind of quiet, almost secretive way on a Saturday, buried in the Defense Appropriations Act for that year. Um, and I learned about it recently in an interview with um, a, a native, a, a Lakota poet, um, Lely Long Soldier, who wrote a book entitled Whereas, because that's the word you find running throughout this official apology. So here's a snippet of that conversation. Great. I mean, I'm just going to read a little bit because, because probably other people haven't heard of it either. <laughs> this is just the beginning. <laughs> to acknowledge a long history of official depredations and ill-conceived policies by the federal government regarding Indian tribes and offer an apology to all Native peoples on behalf of the United States. It talks about the fact that Native peoples inhabited the present-day United States for thousands of years before the arrival of people of European descent, that they honored, protected, and stewarded this land we cherish. And then it says, whereas, whereas the arrival of Europeans in North America opened a new chapter in the mm -hmm. history of Native peoples. And then it continues to whereas, 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 and mm -hmm. whereas. <laughs> mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. You discovered this, and um, yeah, what was your reaction? I, th I think, well, first of all, what w motivated me to even respond to the apology was the delivery. So that's the mm -hmm. heart of it, mm -hmm. or I should say the non-delivery of the apology. Yeah. But then I went online and I read the apology, and then I was like, oh my gosh, the, the language, it's so careful. <laughs> yeah. So carefully crafted. I yeah. mean, my goodness, these guys are poets. Like, <laughs> I mean, very astute and very aware of what each phrase, how, how do I say it? Uh, you know, what each phrase may carry. Yeah. The implication of each phrase. Yeah. So even the phrasing of um, the arrival of Europeans opened a new chapter. Yeah. For native people, that's crazy. It wasn't opening a new chapter, you know. That's yeah, that's almost poetry. I mean, that's a very <laughs> interesting way to to look at what happened, right? Mm. So, and going further into the document, um, you know, just the idea. For example, um, they never mentioned genocide, right? Yeah, yeah. things are phrased as conflicts. Um, lives were taken on both sides yeah, and yeah you know yeah. things like that both took innocent lives including those uh -huh. of women and children yeah. i mean they do say you know the infamous trail of tears and long walk but yeah you're right it's very spare and careful the language is spare you can kind of guess what's going on in the minds of the writers right uh, we should say something but we don't want to say too much we need, somehow, we need to acknowledge this thing, um, but we don't want to really be on the hook for anything. And so, then the apology falls short. 
of what any apology is intended to do, which is to reconnect us, to keep us human. Because if I give in, if I admit something, confess to something, then I'm losing something. And in a way, you are. You are. I mean, you, you're losing your protection, and you're losing your self-righteousness. You're losing your, I'm stronger, better, more everything than you. When you confess, you're losing all of this, and you're exchanging it for liberation, freedom from denial, freedom from lying to yourself. Maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said, those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Over the past few weeks, we've talked a lot about what it means to engage in these uncomfortable conversations, confessions with God, with ourselves, and with one another. And today we reflect on what it means to confess together as a community. But how do we deal with collective sin? I mean, it would be easy for any individual to find some way to wiggle their way out of condemnation, to figure out how to make themselves the exception to the situation. I didn't own slaves as a time-worn favorite. <laughs> and yes, okay, there are degrees to which different people have been harmed or have benefited. Surely those folks that Amos were talking to also lived diverse lives. We could start playing oppression Olympics, but that's not really the point, is it? Let's not get tripped up in these terms, right? The, the prophets of the Bible were not interested exactly in laying out a plan for how to get your life in order. Their job was to make sure that you started to do that work in the first place. And so it would be a lot easier to have someone to give you a roadmap and a timeline of actions to follow. But part of our faith involves figuring out as we go. Like, that's the work. Because each situation has a different path to follow. Because evil and pain can take on a myriad of forms and impact us in a myriad of ways. So it doesn't do to have a one-size-fits-all approach. Our work, done faithfully then, I think, is to, to speak our individual truths as part of collective confession. Because these histories we carry are not just history, they're actually present in our lives, shaping everything that we do, whether we realize it or not. They're waiting to be dealt with, sitting right there with us, traveling with us everywhere we go, haunting us. How long before we implode from the weight of it all? Now, Amos is frustrated because his people aren't even trying to figure it out. They just assumed they were good. And year after year, all of this willful ignorance made it impossible, impossible for God to see anything good from their worship. It was all just hypocrisy. What do reparations look like? I have some guesses. But really, we can't have that answer until we've done the confessional work that it demands. Grappling with this, I think, is part of what it means to worship God. Yes, the, the songs and the ceremonies and maybe even the swag matter, but, you know, it's, it's just one part of it. Righteousness is important. It is a non-negotiable in God's call to wholeness of life for all. But it is only one of the twin streams that make up God's baptismal waters of life. The ever-flowing, ongoing stream of righteousness is matched by the rolling, frothy, chaotic waters of justice. Waters that sometimes you're not sure if you're going to lose your footing and drown in. Justice and righteousness are the two parts that make up a whole life of faith. Consistent, joyful, tenacious righteousness matched with justice work that we do. 
how we receive the questions raised by those who have been harmed, are being harmed, made vulnerable by our collective actions and inactions. This too is part of what it means to worship God. Acknowledging the ways that we have benefited from this history, scholarships, technologies, healthcare breakthroughs, preferential treatment, benefit of the doubt, language, loans, literacy, land. It is work, real work. It's all of our work. Grief work, hope work, life work, faith work. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you have made us strong enough courageous enough, faithful enough to do the work that worship requires. Help us in our lives Monday through Saturday and maybe even Sunday afternoon to apply ourselves to those difficult questions, whether they are questions at an individual level with ourselves and with you or with those around us or as part of a bigger whole. Help us to be people who can own up to our part of the story, the good parts and the hard parts, trusting in your grace, knowing that when we do this, you delight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.